Welcome to the Physician Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland, and I'm a licensed pharmacist and third-year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. As you know, this podcast primarily focuses on medical school admissions and the journey of getting in. But today we're taking another brief hiatus to talk a little bit about pharmacy fellowships. Uh, I believe there are a lot of parallels between getting into medical school and obviously applying to uh, pharmacy fellowships. And I think that we're going to explore some of these details with our special guest, Dr. Noah Palmieri. Dr. Palmieri is a licensed pharmacist and 2018 graduate from Duquesne University School of Pharmacy. He continued his journey by enrolling in a postdoctoral fellowship at BD from 2018 to 2020, after which he entered the workforce as a medical science liaison specializing in oncology medications. He's currently working as a senior MSL at a publicly traded pharmaceutical company and acts as a conduit for external healthcare practitioners and internal medical affairs. His current specialty focuses on metabolic genetics to provide treatment, treatment plans for individuals with rare genetic diseases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Palmieri. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, uh, there's a lot of information to unpack right there. So, you know, let's take things way back like I always do. And I ask about, you know, how did you start in pharmacy? And how did you get to this particular, I, I guess, you know, start in that profession? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't uh, necessarily have predicted that I'd be sitting, you know, in the chair that I am now when I first decided to go to pharmacy school. So I think right off the bat, um, you know, no, nobody, I think, really knows their path. It kind of just uh, unfolds as they go. But um, taking it back um, in high school, I knew that I wanted to do, um, you know, some type of scientific degree in the healthcare field. Um, but I was really having a hard time deciding. Um, I, I was looking at medical school a little bit, but obviously, you know, the comparison between medical school and pharmacy school, um, you know, it's a, a six year program with with less post, um, you know, uh, graduate requirements and pharmacy was kind of more appealing to me. So um, I actually had a cousin going to Duquesne a, a couple of years ahead of me, and he was, you know, telling me a lot about all the good things of pharmacy. So I ended up um, kind of going for the the six year program at Duquesne. Uh, and I'm you know really happy that I did. I met some great people along the way and got a great education and, uh, you know, enabled me to be uh, getting into the professional world now. So it's it's been a great journey. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think a lot of people, you know, starting out will consider in contrast, you know, medical school versus pharmacy school and pharmacy school, like you mentioned, is a little bit shorter, a little more condensed and you can get involved, obviously, you know, with your postgraduate, you know, career ambitions a lot sooner versus medical school is obviously a, a lot longer of a track. So I guess, did you ever consider medical school any further from that point? Or was it something that you kind of you sided with pharmacy and you just never looked back? Um, no, definitely. Um, you know, right, right at the beginning, I, I was between kind of the two and then I went with pharmacy school. And then actually, funnily enough, during pharmacy school, um, me and one of my um, good friends from my um, same pharmacy year, Sam Stitzel, um, we both were kind of, you know, thinking to ourselves, mm, like, should we do medical school, man? I don't know. And we actually you know, sat down and, and looked at it a little bit. And then both of us ended up staying in the, in the pharmacy world. But, um, you know, I think, um, you know, pharmacy is obviously a great career and it's been really good to me. Um, but, you know, you know, medicine is obviously fantastic as well. And I think there's a lot of, you know, attributes to, um, you know, being on, on that part of the healthcare team as well. Uh, but, you know, for me, pharmacy just ended up, uh, you know, making the most sense at the two times that I looked at medical school, you know, as a comparator, basically, before I started and then kind of halfway through pharmacy school. 
So I guess you went to pharmacy school. What was your, your journey like throughout pharmacy school? I, I guess, were you ever considering pharmacy residencies, community pharmacy? How, how did you fall into the fellowship track? Yeah, I had um, a really kind of interesting um, path through pharmacy school. Um, and I guess you could say I was considering really all three areas at, at some point in time. Um, you know, when I first started pharmacy school, my, my worldview on what a pharmacist could be and could do was a lot smaller and a lot more traditional. So, um, you know, like day one sitting in Gen Bio and, and Gen Chem, I was expecting to um, do, you know, retail pharmacy in my, in my local community and, and be a pharmacist in that way. Um, then kind of, you know, as, as my um, studies went further, I became attached to the idea of potentially being a clinical pharmacist. So, um, you know, that was really my plan. I found out about fellowships and, and, and from there kind of later in pharmacy school, uh, I started to focus on fellowships uh, more towards in my fourth year and, and beyond. That's awesome. And so I guess, you know, introducing the concept of fellowships, this is something that's relatively novel to me and I think it isn't as common compared to, you know, residency and community pharmacy for our listeners. So how does the, the fellowship application cycle even work? When does it start? Yeah, the, the fellowship application cycle is um, it's a little bit different than um, something that you would do for um, like a residency. Uh, so the, the kind of the cycle would start uh, when someone is in their um, last year of pharmacy school. Um, the applications window usually would open up in the fall. Uh, the program that I participated in, the MCPHS um, postdoctoral fellowship program, Usually in around you know late September or early October is when that window would open up, um, and from there students would essentially um, submit an application uh, to be considered for interviews. And uh, before COVID hit and kind of changed um, the way the world worked, everything was always traditionally done at um, at mid year, and I believe that's still the case. Although I'm a, a couple of years removed from um, you know being a fellow, so. Um, I would assume that everything still happens at mid-year, but, you know, maybe some programs do it virtually now. But um, in any case, it's, it's a little bit different from um, residencies with, uh, you know, the portal and, you know, uploading all of your stuff and then waiting for that one fateful day in March ends up their email and, um, you know, post about where they're going to go and, and stuff like that. So um, a little bit different, a little more abstract. And then as far as like, you know, getting offers for employment, um, those kind of are at the discretion of each specific fellowship position as to when they want to extend those, you know, at or around the mid-year meeting. Um, so you could be getting job offers in December, uh, potentially January, um, or, you know, as late as even February, but usually towards the mid part of your sixth year, um, is when kind of all the action happens for fellowships in terms of, uh, doing your interviews, doing your onsite interviews, and then getting an offer for employment and, um, taking that. Wow, that has a lot of information to unpack there. And I think it's interesting that it starts a lot sooner than than pharmacy residencies. Um, you know, and I obviously didn't do one of these, but the recommendation um, that I'm aware of is that you don't really, you kind of, you know, start researching programs a little bit ahead of time, but, you know, mid-year is basically where you are, you know, really shopping around to see which programs are going to be good fits for you um, versus, like you said, with the fellowship, you're, you're already like halfway applied and all situated and you could be getting job offers right around that same time period. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, no, definitely. It's kind of um, like the compare and contrast is uh, mid-year you're looking at programs. If you're going to do residency, that's kind of where you meet and greet. Whereas mid-year for fellowship candidates is 
almost like D-Day in the sense that you're going to probably be doing 30 interviews over the course of that week with maybe 10 different programs. And um, it's going to be, you know, a highly stressful process of, you know, early mornings and late nights and basically trying to, um, you know, rack your brain and talk about yourself probably six to eight hours a day. So it's it's definitely a different mid-year week for the fellows versus, um, you know, those who are looking at residencies. It's funny. I, I remember sneaking into some of the uh, the fellowship dinners when I attended mid-year. And, you know, the, the difference in my uh, demeanor was uh, dramatic compared to some of the fellowship uh, individuals who were sitting there and they, they just looked very tired. Um, but yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah, you, you see you see a wide range of, uh, you know, people from people who are super tired to people who are super amped up and doing a death grip on their, you know, beverage of choice. And, and you can see them kind of being very rigid and stuff like that. And then there, there's people who are, you know, like you said, really exhausted as well. So you, you do see a lot of different, um, a lot of different emotions on display for that week in December. Yeah. Mid-year is definitely a stressful time for the the pharmacy profession, but also a lot of, a lot all of around. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, but, you know, not too much fun. You always, uh, you never want to you know put yourself in a position. So I'll say, uh, I'll, I'll say that as a, as a word of guidance, you know, anybody going to mid-year, just make sure that you, you know, assume that you could run into someone that you've just interviewed with, you know, at all times. So, you know, not to be, not to be the fun police per se, but, you know, keep it professional. <laughs> Absolutely. And so for individuals who are considering, you know, pharmacy fellowships, do you have any recommendations to, to make them, you know, I guess, prepare them for a, to, to have a competitive run at the application cycle? Definitely. Um, you know, definitely, I'd say that the best thing that people can do is to check and see if their particular school of pharmacy offers uh, an appy rotation at a pharmaceutical company. Uh, I was lucky enough to take advantage of um, Duquesne's uh, rotation at Eli Lilly and company in Indianapolis. So I was able to spend uh, five weeks there. And importantly, too, you want to make sure that you do um, an appy at a pharma, you know, or regulatory body or whatever it may be, but do it before mid-year. Um, because unfortunately, you know, if you have it scheduled in like March or April, that like, that's great for your personal growth and exposure, but you can't talk about that in a job interview in December. So um, make sure to front load your sixth year with any appies that are, you know, relevant to the pharmaceutical fellowship world. Um, you know, outside of that, um, you know, you can also maybe look at summer internships and ba basically the, the, the goal, if you're interested in a fellowship should be getting exposure to, um, you know, what it's like to work in a pharmaceutical company, kind of, uh, you know, the, the structure of the organization that, you know, or not organization, but really industry that you're looking to join. So if you're wanting to be an MSL fellow, you should kind of have a general idea of how medical affairs works, regulatory, uh, regulatory, and, um, you know, if you're looking to do marketing, you should have a general idea of the commercial side of things. But really, the, the you know, it's a long winded answer, but you basically just want to have some exposure and some knowledge of the pharmaceutical industry going into your interviews if possible. Yeah. So it sounds like obviously, you know, getting to meet people and doing those appy rotations at those facilities to gain perspective uh, is going to be, you know, crucial. I'm curious to know how how does like, you know, GPA grades and, you know, other like maybe research exposure help with like an applicant? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like th there's definitely I would say, um, you know, GPA considerations and things like that. But but I would say as well um, and, and research is great if it's there. But I, I would say overall, I mean, everybody's a body of their, you know, whole exposure in pharmacy school and, you know, 
nobody is really reduced to a number just by their GPA. Um, so I think, you know, personality is really important as well. Um, so, you know, obviously you have to have a professional candor, you have to have, you know, the, the GPA should be good. And obviously the higher, the more competitive and things like that. But certainly, um, you know, personality plays a role in that. And, and, you know, when a candidate's being considered, I think, um, the prospective interviewer is going to consider their GPA and their research, but also, you know, is this somebody that I want to have sitting a couple of desks away from me for the next two years, potentially. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of everything. Absolutely. And there's, there's certainly a lot of parallels with that and getting into medical school too, because, um, you know, as a adcom who's, you know, interviewing uh, applicants for medical school, they want to make sure that this individual is going to be a good fit that is going to contribute to, you know, the, the, the class and the curriculum and so on. So same kind of principle with obviously, you know, joining a, a fellowship. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. No doubt. It's, uh, you know, pretty much every factor will be considered. So it's important to, you know, have, have a decent GPA, have good credentials to your name in terms of the, what you can offer from your, your, you know, report card basically, but then also, you know, it's important to, to be a respectful person. It's important to, you know, have humility and, um, you know, be ready to, to join a team and, and work really hard with them. Absolutely. And so when applying to fellowships, you know, how many programs do you generally recommend students apply to? Do you have to cast a, a wide net or is it more narrow focused in the sense that you only apply to programs that you did happy rotations at? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Certainly, I, I would say you would apply to more than just your happy rotations. Um, but kind of kind of it's like you want to be do a little bit of a Goldilocks move where you apply to enough that that gives you the exposure and the chances to, you know, move on to a second and third round interview if you're successful. Um, but you don't want to apply to so many that then your your week at mid year is full of you know, you know, five six interviews a day or or I don't even know how many people can handle these days. But you essentially don't want to overload yourself because if you overload, then the quality of your interviewing skills will go down. Um, so I think you know, thinking back on my experience, I maybe applied to six to eight programs. Um, and then obviously each one of those is going to have an, in, you know, a, a, a first round interview and then potentially if you're going further, a second and a third round. So, you know, you can basically, if, if you are expecting to be successful at something you apply to, you're looking at maybe two to three interviews at that particular company. So keep that in perspective. If you apply to 10 different, um, you know, if you apply to 10 different programs, you could potentially be doing you know, 20, you know, 25 different interviews over the, over the course of a week. So, you know, definitely don't overload it is, is my guidance, but certainly don't just apply, you know, in my case, I didn't just apply to Eli Lilly, I applied to several. And um, the last thing I'll add to you generally should, um, you know, have a narrative of what kind of position you are, you know, approaching in terms of, you know, the commercial realm or the medical realm. And in, in my experience, I, I think what i would guide people to do is, is mainly just stick in, in applying in one area or the other. So, um, if you, cause I, generally I believe if you're like doing in the Rutgers program and I'm getting a bit off the rails here, but they can, I think, see what other programs you've applied to. So if you're, if you're in one interview saying, Oh, it's my passion to be a medical science liaison, I, I really want to, you know, focus on the science. That's my thing. I could do it for 30 years. Then in the next interview, if you're like, Oh, actually marketing is my thing. I really can't wait to um, come up with strategic business plans because I'm I'm a big you know marketing person. You're kind of getting a little bit inauthentic switching between what your you know quote unquote passion is. So you know stick like I I did pretty much all um, you know medical um, interviews when I was when I was in in the process. 
Wow, that, that's actually super interesting to to think about that. And so I, just the sheer volume of interviews that an individual could set themselves up for, you know, sometimes even mistakenly, uh, where they, they, like you said, they provide to 10 programs, they get all secondary, possible tertiary interviews, 25 interviews in a week sounds horrible. You know, I don't even know how you would keep it all straight. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a delicate dance of, you know, you want to want to have shots on goal, but you definitely don't want to reduce the overall quality of your you know, ability to speak to yourself. So it, it can, it can snowball really quick. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I guess my follow-up question is, you know, is there a, a match day for individuals? You've gone through all these interviews. Um, do they rank you or, or how does that work exactly in comparison to maybe uh, residency? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, certainly, you know, each, each preceptor and each program director is going to be, um, you know, looking at the candidates that they have. Um, but generally in, in the fellowship world, um, it all culminates with a, an onsite interview. So, um, you know, if maybe a hundred people apply to a position, maybe three or four will get brought, you know, to an onsite at, at the physical company's, um, you know, headquarters, or again, post COVID, you know, it could potentially be remote now, I guess. But um, if, if you have an onsite interview, you, you should be pretty sure that you're one of the, you know, one of the three or four final people, and then from there, it just comes down to any typical job where, um, you know, they, they look at all the candidates and pick the one that they think is the best fit. Um, and as far as a specific day, um, this actually does not occur on any specific day. So um, certainly there are people who, you know, get offers um, extended at the mid-year meeting itself. Um, there's obviously the, the, the majority will be, you know, in the weeks directly after mid-year as well. So um, it, you know, everybody goes to mid-year and everybody, usually that's kind of the, the general base of where all the interviews will occur. Um, but from there, it's really up to the program as to when they want to extend offers and, and things of that nature. And I'll, and I'll add on as well, when I speak about mid-year, I'm kind of referring to, um, you know, the, like Rutgers, MCPHS, Northeastern, uh, fellowship programs. But over the last few years, uh, so many um, more fellowship programs are popping up, and I'm sure that there are probably some who um, do things maybe outside of mid-year. So um, definitely any candidate who's interested in a fellowship, just make sure you do your due diligence and um, ensure that, you know, while most usually occur at mid-year, maybe there's potentially some new fellowship programs that, um, you know, do interviews separately. So, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm not putting up anything that's not fully correct, I guess. Yeah, all, all great points right there. So I definitely appreciate that. So, you know, after you've been, I guess, granted a fellowship position at that point, obviously you're very excited. Um, you know, what do you recommend to individuals who have gotten to that point? Uh, is there any recommendations that they should be doing prior to starting that fellowship? Perhaps maybe like boards or licensure or just straight up re relaxation? Yeah, that's a, a another great question. I would say, um, you know, it, 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 you're almost transitioning from being a student to now, um, you know, being a, being a person in the real world, quote unquote. So um, I would say that, you know, each particular uh, person who accepts a, a job offer to, to start a fellowship, obviously check with your preceptor or program director as to, you know, any prerequisites or recommended readings or things like that. Um, but certainly I think um, it's important to keep in mind, you know, if you're at the point where you've just gotten a fellowship, you've completed from anywhere from six to eight years of, um, you know, university education to, to get there. And it's important to, 
you know, I think have a fresh mindset and get ready for the next challenge. So, you know, be good to yourself. Enjoy, enjoy the last, um, you know, half the, half of the, the year of your, of your pharmacy school studies, um, and get ready to, to hit the ground running, but certainly lean on the program that you are selected for to tell you, you know, really what to do as, as it comes to getting ready for that particular job. Um, and, and just to follow up on your question as well, as, as it relates to licensure and things like that, um, you can definitely use the time uh, from around May of graduation to generally sometime midsummer when you'd be starting at the fellowship. You can, you know, start your studies and, and you know, prepare to get licensed. Uh, you don't don't definitely do not have to be a licensed pharmacist to do a fellowship. Um, but, you know, especially with me being in the medical world, I think it, it's nice to have the, you know, the registered pharmacist behind the PharmD just to show people that I did get my my um, state licensure. So I did end up getting licensed in, in my first year during my fellowship. And you can obviously work with your your preceptor and program director to, uh, you know, carve off a day off uh, for maybe studying or, you know, take a day to, to take your boards and things like that. Yeah, that's that's super interesting uh, to hear that. Um, and it probably it's going to be the easiest to get your your boards taken care of right after you graduate in the sense that it's everything's going to be so fresh. You still have some mo momentum. You know, so if you you know take a couple of years off and then you, you fall away from that, I, I feel like it might be even harder to to jump back on. Yeah, a hundred percent. I would I would certainly recommend people to um you know to stay up on their studies after they graduate. And you know if you're if you're feeling really driven, potentially you could even take your um, examination prior to your fellowship start date. But um, like you said, Nate, that's that's a great point. That really the longer you wait, the more. Um, you know, all this knowledge that you, you know, A, studied for a long time to learn and B, paid a lot of money for, um, it's going to start to fade off as you focus more on your day-to-day -day duties as a fellow. Um, so you want to make sure that you, you know, obviously, um, you know, get licensed if you can and, um, you know, just have a, have a backup. I was actually able to give um, COVID shots during, um, obviously, the, the crisis in, in 2021. I was able to um, utilize my active licensure to um give shots on the weekend uh, and my company was fine with that and you know i was able to give back to the community a little bit and um you know chip into the student loans a little extra for those few months so you know it's all about having options and you may as well uh, get licensed if you spend all those years yeah the the pandemic provided a, a lot of opportunities for pharmacists who especially like us um who you know needed some I guess we're busy doing other things with our our careers, and it allowed us to kind of jump into some very flexible positions. Because um, I was also, you know, doing COVID shots um, during that time period with a couple of different companies who just needed basically pharmacy support um, because they were just drowning in all all of the, the the labor that was associated with it. So that's cool that you were able to to do that as well on the side. Yeah, it, it worked out really nice. So tell me a little bit about your fellowship experience. Uh, you know, what was that like for you? Yeah, the, the fellowship, um, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. Um, a lot of personal and professional growth um, occurred over my time, um, you know, with with MCPHS and, and at BD. Um, I was exposed to um, both the, you know, commercial side, uh, you know, my fellowship was clinical marketing. Um, so, it's, you know, it's actually the one commercial fellowship that I applied for, everything else was medical. But technically, the one commercial one that I applied for, um, I ended up getting, which is kind of funny, you know. So, again, take all my advice with a grain of salt, because uh, earlier I said to only do one or the other, and you know, you can, it's okay if you do maybe one, you know, of the commercial side, but don't don't do like five and five. I would, you know, generally keep it focused. So, um, my fellowship experience was great, though. Um, you know, I was able to learn a lot about um, what what it's like to be on the commercial side. 
uh, come up with marketing plans, you know, see what um, sales reps face on a day-to-day basis of, you know, there, there was one day where uh, we rented a car and drove around Los Angeles for like six hours. Um, and it was a lot of time spent, you know, on the highway and, and then, you know, going and, you know, having a meeting and potentially getting turned away or they, they didn't want to speak with us. So, you know, big respect um, gained for sales reps when I was uh, in the commercial side of things. And I was also able to do a little bit of a, of a medical rotation with our, with the MSLs at Becton Dickinson. And that was really um, enlightening for me and really influential and helped me get my, you know, full-time position now as, as an MSL, that experience was great. So, you know, overall fellowships, um, they're, they're just such a fantastic learning experience because certainly you have your, your day-to-day, um, you know, requirements and your, your day-to-day things that you're working on. But at the end of the day, um, the companies are really investing in you, you know, they're, they're employing you, you know, through this program to basically learn as much as you can in your one to two years there and um, be a potential asset for them in the future if you end up staying on with them or, you know, wherever you go in the future. So, you know, fellowships are all about just learning and exposure. It's the only, really the only job you can ever have where just the goal is to learn as much as possible um, and, and better yourself. Absolutely. And it's, it follows that principle of, you know, you get what you put into it and the 100%. more, yeah, the more you invest into, you know, learning things and, and being hands-on, the more opportunities and doors you're going to open down the line. So it sounds like, you know, that was something that kind of happened uh, to you. And obviously with that MSL uh, experience that you had with that rotation. Yeah, and no doubt. I, I'm curious to know, you know, was there anything you found more challenging than you, you know, originally anticipated? Um, you know, honestly, I, I would say the biggest challenge for me, um, of the fellowship, uh, which I didn't anticipate so much when I signed up, you know, and, and accepted it, but I think just geographically, um, moving from Pittsburgh to Northern New Jersey, uh, I didn't have any family there and kind of within the MCPHS program, um, the, the Becton Dickinson fellowship is, you know, the, the headquarters of the business is in Northern New Jersey, but the rest of the programs within the uh, MCPHS or Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences program are located in and around the Boston area. So um, as far as having the fellows, you know, from other companies nearby me that I didn't necessarily have that. It was mainly just me and my my group at BD, which, you know, a lot of them are so many of my close friends for life, I would say. Um, so, you know, I, I would just say you know, making that transition from leaving home, if you will, to kind of going out in the world. And, you know, actually, you know, the, the first, um, the, the first year of the fellowship, I couldn't really afford to find any places that I could reasonably pay for. So I had to find some, you know, some roommates and, and just get to know people that I'd never met in my life. So it's a lot, you know, but, um, it makes you a better person. And, you know, as you said, the more experiences you go through, you become more well-rounded and, and that, you know, you can, take it for what it's worth and, and grow from it. Yeah. That's one of the recommendations we make for, you know, getting into medical school is, you know, when you're down to the line, picking a, a program, you want to have access to a, a good support network. Are you going to be comfortable in that particular region? And, and sometimes, you know, you don't have any choice and you're kind of stuck with that. Um, but it's definitely a consideration to have. So, you know, I'm glad that you found solace and, you know, some of the other uh, individuals you were working with, but it can definitely be challenging. So I, I definitely uh, recognize that. Yeah, definitely. And that's so, good advice to give. So I guess, what was your work-life balance like? Um, I, I'm under the impression that you traveled quite a bit because uh, you mentioned the LA. Yeah, certainly. Um, and in and, and different fellowships, we'll have different um, kind of... So, so you know, I'll talk about my experience, but definitely anybody listening, um, that's not going to be 
the experience for every single fellow just because that the um opportunities and different um you know positions that you can get are so varying um i did travel quite a bit uh, domestically in the united states um you know supporting the clinical marketing objectives as well as um getting the chance to to work with the msls at beckton dickinson um so it was a lot of travel i think there was one month where uh i was gone like 24 days out of the month um which you know was fine obviously because you know i didn't have like a pet goldfish i needed to take care of or a, a dog <laughs> or anything like that um so you know it, it, you can potentially travel a lot if you're a fellow and and that kind of reflects different positions where there's travel more and less there's some positions that that will travel not nearly as much and then uh there's others where the travel is you know they're on a global team so they're getting to go to uh europe for conferences left and right and, and things like that so um you know it's a salaried position um you're, you're working you're you're getting paid 40 hours a week and you know potentially there's some weeks where it's it's a little lighter than 40 if it's a slow time of the year but there's potentially some weeks where you know you're connecting from LA to Newark through, uh, Chicago and then a blizzard hits and your flight gets canceled and you get stuck and, and things like that. So, um, you definitely, if you, if you are looking to work in the pharmaceutical industry and, and, um, you want to travel, um, you know, being very flexible and, um, you know, being ready to deal with the unexpected, you know, always expect the unexpected when, when you're dealing with travels, I'll say that. Absolutely. You have to be adaptable for sure. Yeah. So, you know, after you had finished a couple years in fellowship, what, where, where did you end up going next? Yeah. So, so I was really lucky, um, to, um, get an, an amazing opportunity to join a great company, um, uh, in my first role out of, um, you know, participating in the fellowship program. Uh, so I was in oncology MSL, um, working for actually a private, um, a privately held company. Um, and it was, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it was a, it was a very small company that I joined. And, um, the people there were, were just a one and I, I can't, you know, say enough about, you know, how, how good everybody, everyone, you know, was to work with there. And I still keep in touch with, with many of them, but, um, you know, it was a, definitely a big step. Um, you know, I still remember that going into the first, um, you know, physician meeting when, you know, I was actually the, the MSL now instead of just the fellow. So it was a, a little bit, you know, daunting at first, but, um, I think, you know, everybody kind of feels that imposter syndrome, but, you know, it's important to remember that, um, you know, we only get to where we are through so many years of hard work. Um, and you know, you're, you're there for a reason if you're, if you're stepping into that room and getting ready to run that meeting. So, you know, self-doubt can always creep in, but I think it's important to, um, you know, remind yourself of all the hard work that you've done. And, you know, that was really what got me through my first three to six months as an MSL, just getting more comfortable. And, uh, from there, um, you know, it, it came easier and easier as I got more confident in myself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think everyone experiences a little bit of imposter syndrome, especially as you, you know, breach that threshold where you graduated. And, you know, even as a pharmacist, I, I myself, you know, I'm, I'm in medical school, but at the same time, I was working as a pharmacist. And it's just, it feels so strange to put that white coat on and, and sit there and make, you know, people turn to you and make the, ask you to make these clinical decisions. And it can be overwhelming at first, but as, like you said, over time, you just get adjusted to it. You know, you've been, you've trained for that particular purpose. And it all kind of falls into place if you've done the work ahead of time. No, a hundred, a hundred percent. And, you know, certainly that feeling, I mean, when, when I was giving COVID shots, I, I also had the chance to, um, 
to cover a few days in, in, in a physical like brick and mortar pharmacy when someone got sick or something like that. And, you know, I still remember the, the feeling of like, you know, I'm ready to verify my first prescription and hearts pounding a little bit. And it's like metformin 500 milligrams. Like, you know, I think we, we got this, but um, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm, I was happy that metformin was the first one. Cause you know, it, you know, everyone takes that. So uh, it was, you know, that was good, but um, you know, it, it's very daunting when, when the rubber hits the road and the spotlight is kind of on you and people are, like you said, looking to you. Um, that's where you have to be confident in yourself and certainly doesn't come naturally for some. And, you know, for me, it, it didn't come naturally out of the gate. Um, but just the more exposure that you have, um, you can gain confidence in yourself that should rightfully be there. Um, you know, we, like you said, we work really hard to get you know to where we want to be. Absolutely. So, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what an MSL does? What's your day to day? Yeah, an MSL um, is a medical science liaison. And, and you know, the day to day is pretty variable and that reflects the job. So um, really the goal of an MSL, to put it, um, you know, as simply as possible is to be the point person when it comes to science for a company. Um, so an MSL's job is to bridge kind of the internal science that's happening at an organization with um, outside stakeholders or HCPs, basically, you know, depending on the disease state, obviously MDs and um, things of the like would be there, but nurse practitioners as well, physician assistants, basically people taking care of, of those who are affected by whatever disease the company is working on. Um, so the MSL does a lot um, with kind of bridging that gap and making sure that um, any scientific questions that, you know, need a detailed explanation can be answered appropriately. Um, the MSL also works to support um, any research proposals generally that are brought in externally to the company, um, the MSL will kind of shepherd uh, external research proposals through an internal um, review board to see if they'll be approved or not. Um, and as well, um, you know, MSLs will, will cover conferences where they serve um, generally at a medical booth um, to be kind of a, a face for medical affairs at a, at a particular company and, and answer questions for those who may be uh, come up to the booth and, and want to know something. And as well, uh, MSLs uh, go and cover scientific sessions and then are able to interact with those podium speakers delivering presentations as well as prepare a report uh, that they can then provide internally to basically let the rest of medical affairs know, hey, you know, this is, um, you know, conference ABCDEFG was in Houston, Texas over this last, you know, couple of weeks or one, you know, not a couple of weeks, but a couple of days. And, um, you know, these are the main things that were brought up. So MSLs have a very um, variable job in terms of, um, you know, the roles and responsibilities, you know, if they're talking, you know, they could be talking to an HCP or they could be attending a conference. Um, and, and really kind of the last most important thing I'd say of an MSL is to really develop a deep, um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer relationship with top um, key opinion leaders or KOLs um, in a particular therapeutic area. Uh, and, you know, essentially just, um, you know, develop that relationship, um, you know, obviously, um, in a, in a, a compliant way. For sure. And there's definitely a lot to unpack there, but, you know, essentially what I, I kind of took away is, um, you know, you serve as the, the, the medical professional who has like the doctorate, the education, the training, who can then kind of translate some of that medical jargon you know, interpret uh, results from particular studies or, you know, interests, um, you know, when it comes to external parties, and then translate that into potentially like a business model, 
or you know make sure that you know individuals who are working in that field maybe like an mba or someone with that kind of degree can understand and then kind of move the the ball down the field is that is that correct yeah cer- certainly so so really the, the main thing as an msl is that there 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 should be a separation from you know the the pure science that an msl deals with and um you know the the business side of the company but certainly if you know if there's a particular question about coverage for um, a medication if it's marketed or, or something like that msls always can refer hcps to um you know other members of the organization on the commercial side uh who can offer more support you know from from that side of things um but overall you know as i said earlier the the msl's chief role is to to be the science person um but again you know companies at the end of the day are, are businesses and they need to make money and they follow business plans for the commercial side and um you know medical plans on the medical side so msls are working you know, in a strategic role, obviously, uh, but they're doing so compliantly and, and making sure that everything is, um, you know, kosher from the, the standpoint of uh, the rules that the FDA sets out for, you know, interaction types and, um, you know, every, everything, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of rules, but um, I, I hope that was able to answer your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, now that you've kind of moved up to the senior MSL level, you know, how have your responsibilities changed, um, you know, from, I guess, where you started? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the, the, the senior MSL role has been great for me to kind of grow into, um, you know, more responsibility, as you said, I, I, I think really at its core, it's just more what the company entrusts you with. Um, and not that they obviously, you know, don't, don't trust you if, if you're an entry level MSL or an associate MSL, but, um, you know, now that I'm a senior MSL, um, you know, I kind of have a little more autonomy over my region as to, you know, making recommendations on, um, you know, s- specific um, regional and smaller conferences that, you know, I believe, you know, that the company would benefit from having a presence at, um, as well as just having um, a little bit more autonomy as to kind of, um, you know, I guess autonomy and confidence in, in making recommendations, you know, with, with my professional judgment to, you know, my boss and, and, and their superiors as well. So, um, the, the role is, is relatively the same in terms of the, um, in terms of the day to day. Uh, but again, it's like if, if, if you're at a company where you have associate MSLs and then you have a senior MSL, um, that senior title just reflects the, um, little bit more experience that you've, you've garnered and, um, kind of the, you know, increase in confidence and judgment that you can offer given your experience to get there. Absolutely. You know, I guess to kind of like summarize that they you verified that you know what you're doing. Um, they can take maybe the, the training wheels off and let you, you know, pull the trigger on a lot more, uh, you know, executive le- level decisions when it comes to that level and degree. Yeah, d- definitely. Um, you know, it, it, it certainly just reflects that, you know, you've been in MSL for a couple of years now and you're ready to, you know, take the step up and whether that means that you plan more conferences as a senior MSL or you have, um, you know, a little bit more on your plate. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, the, the workload is commensurate with the title and, you know, you, you move up a little bit in the world and, and so comes the responsibilities with your, uh, you know, increased title is all. And I'm also curious to know, so you were originally working in like oncology drugs, but then you've kind of shifted more to genetics. Um, you know, I'm curious to hear how training for that, or was it like a dramatic shift in, you know, your knowledge base that you had to, to learn and develop, or was it relatively similar in the sense that you understood the, the framework at that point and you just kind of filled in, you know, the different topics? 
Yeah. So definitely, um, definitely, you know, and, and this actually takes me back to some great advice from, um, you know, my mentor, Tom, that he provided me with is, which is if you're ever looking to change a role in, in the pharmaceutical industry, you can change two things. You can change your therapeutic area and you can change your job type. And he gave me some great advice, which was basically pick one. So you can, if you're an MSL in oncology, you could, you know, get a job offer and be an MSL in rare disease now, because uh, you only need to learn the rare disease part, the MSL part you already know, which, you know, would conversely, you know, say you're an MSL in oncology, and then you have a complete change of heart and you want to be, um, you know, like a marketing manager in pulmonology. So now you have to, um, obviously, assuming you you apply for and get the job, now you have to learn two different things at once, your, your, in your job role and your science that you're, you're doing. Um, so that's really great advice from him, basically just only, only pick one of the two. So, um, you know, kind of having the foundation and, and the skill set of an MSL, I was able to, you know, get an offer to go to the rare disease side of things. And, uh, particularly in the metabolic world of, um, rare disease where I work now. Um, and the, the training always for MSLs is handled by the company. So you definitely get a nice, uh, you know, probably three month usual boot camp um, of basically that you know, they'll give you a training plan and whether there's an assessment with that or not, that's up to them. But, you know, rest assured, um, any MSL who's out in the field has had rigorous training from their company um, to make sure that they're, you know, well, well versed in all the science that they cover. But it was, you know, a lot of um, learning, but it, it was fun. Honestly, I, I, I'm always someone who loves to learn. And, and it was really cool to learn all the new science at the place where I'm at now. Fantastic. Well, I love to hear all of that. And I'm curious, you know, how, I guess, where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? What are your goals? Yeah, I think, um, that's a great question. Um, you know, definitely I want to continue growing, um, professionally. Um, you know, I've always kind of wondered what it would be like potentially to, um, you know, manage an MSL team. So I think, you know, if one day, um, you know, if, if the opportunity presents itself, I think that would certainly be something that would, um, pique my interest um you know outside of that um i've always kind of had a passion in aviation and i told myself i want to get a private pilot's license one day so i think in the next five to ten years if i you know have time to do that on the side and you know obviously as a, as a hobby not necessarily a career change but um you know it'd be fun to, to learn how to do that so you know i think it's good to have you know both personal and professional goals so it, it you know focus on work but also you know it's good to you know, have something that you're passionate about and, and build forward to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You, of course you want to, you know, have professional goals, like you said, and, but you don't also want to marry your career. You know, there's more to life than, than all of that. So that's good to hear. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and actually kind of the, the, it, you know, it kind of reminds me back into my interviews um, and, and just a little tidbit of advice I'll give. Um, so, you know, obviously you, you, you bring yourself up there and you want to talk about your technical knowledge and, and things like that and for your, for, for your fellowship interviews um, and experiences are important too. But also I, th I think it's good to talk a little bit about, you know, hobbies, potentially, obviously at the end, maybe just one question, just, just to have a little bit of your personal side come out. Um, but the, the funny story that um, I'm reminded of is I um, did a lot of sailing um, with a, a good family friend during college. So um, I, talked about that at the end of the interview they said what do you like to do and i said well i you know i sailed a little bit and i enjoy it and it turns out that the person interviewing me um also 
knew about sailing. So they immediately started using technical sailing terms and, and said, okay, you know, if the, if the wind was coming at, uh, you know, 90 degree angle and you were looking to, um, you know, head in this direction, how would you trim the sail and, and set your, so, which I knew cause, cause it, cause it was a real genuine thing. But, um, you know, again, the, the reminder is like, bring your hobbies and personal life up, but you know, don't try to make anything up because you never know when someone's going to ask you uh, technical information about something that you claim to know about. So, you know, just a little funny story. But yeah, I mean, that's a, such a great point right there because despite, you know, you're talking about something that you're passionate about and for that interviewer, that's probably one of the most memorable interviews they've had. I'm sure that's you true. shined like a you know, spotlight there. Yeah. Um, just because you talk about something, you know, obviously you're qualified for the position. You made it to the interview point. So now they want to see that you're someone with, you know, outside personality with, you know, ambitions beyond just getting into a particular program. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think at the end of the day that the best advice that I can offer is, you know, certainly obviously, you know, you want to have a, a well-rounded CV that reflects, you know, really good effort in school and getting involved with extracurriculars and everything. But um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, authenticity is really important. And, um, you know, I can obviously say for myself, if I was ever looking to hire somebody that, um, you know, authenticity is really important to me and I'm sure potentially others in the field as well. So, you know, obviously maintain, you know, great GPA and, and your extracurriculars, but at the end of the day, there's a person interviewing you and, and they're interviewing a person. And I think it's important to, you know, just, just be real with people during job interviews and, um, you know, just be your real self. And, and I think, you know, things work out, um, from there. And, and speaking on hobbies, um, you know, I know you're obviously a busy individual, so I'm not sure how much time you have to read, but are, are there any like potential books that you would recommend to, to students or do you have like a personal favorite that you just like to share? Uh, certainly, uh, from the, the fellowship world, um, I'm blanking on the title of it, but there, there was a book that was really helpful for me. Um, and, and I'll, I'll get you that, um, title and you can, uh, you know, read it off or, or post it in the, in the description. Um, but you know, I would say a really good book I read actually recently, um, it's called sled driver and it is, um, it's a guy who flew, um, SR 71 spy planes. And, um, you know, he actually has a crazy story. He got shot down in Vietnam and was like, you know, burning in his wreck and somehow got a, like 15 different surgeries to be able to be able to fly this, you know, crazy Mach three spy plane and, um, really enthralling book. And you can actually, um, the PDF is available online. I think if you, um, search it. So, um, yeah, sled driver is a really cool read, uh, that I would recommend if, especially if you like aviation, which again, if you can't tell, uh, when I'm not talking science, I, I like, uh, planes, which is kind of nerdy, but I embrace <laughs> it. No, not, not a problem. You got to stick with what you're passionate about. Like you said, no doubt. All righty. So we've come to the end of our interview today, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for the support. If you have any additional questions about the medical school journey or fellowships, uh, you can check out my website at www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, Dr. Palmieri, how can our listeners learn more about you or get in touch? Yeah, great question. Um, certainly, um, I'm available on LinkedIn. So if you um, just search my name, uh, I should should come up pretty quickly. And, you know, feel free to uh, message me, reach out. And, um, you know, as long as I have the bandwidth, uh, I'd be happy to, you know, help uh, whoever and however many people I can. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Noah. Uh, you know, I, I know you're a very uh, busy individual and I, I really do appreciate your time. 
no, likewise. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me and, um, good luck with, uh, the rest of, uh, all that you do, uh, certainly, uh, getting to know you at Duquesne and, and seeing you, you know, bridge from pharmacy to now medical school. Uh, the sky is definitely the limit and, uh, who knows one day you might be the, you know, chief medical officer at a, a drug company and I'll be working for you. So <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But, um, all right. I appreciate it and take care. Hey, likewise, you have a good uh, start to 2023. All right.